This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Thank you for joining us for a new episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we're going to talk about extreme weather across the United States. It's hot and the air is gross. And I know many of you are experiencing that. And after that, I'm going to share a delight of a conversation that I had with Rob Harvella, host of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And outside of politics, we're going to talk about making friends as adults. For the extreme heat and making friends conversations, I have brought in an expert on both topics in addition to being... I was trying to decide how to introduce you, Brian. Should I introduce (laughs) you as a United Nations award winner for your innovation and disabilities work Or as someone so dear to me that you're my emergency contact. I assume those two compete for the top slot on your resume. (laughs) They're up there. I I prefer the second one. Being someone's emergency (laughs) contact is a high value mark for me. So I'll take it. Well, Brian (laughs) Hart is here and I'm so glad that you're with me, Brian. Brian's been on the show before, moved to Kentucky from Utah, which I'm sure is going to come up in our next conversation. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We are going to talk about the Supreme Court on Tuesday, I promise. There's a lot to process from this term. We will get into it. We will also continue to talk about gun violence always on the show. It's been a tragic week across the country. We are grieving it. I know you are, too. Maggie recently compiled a list of all of our episodes about gun violence that we'll link in the notes. It is sadly long and sadly incomplete. But if you're new here, I hope that list will lead you to some conversations that might help you process the shootings that took place this week. But for right now, it is Friday. It's a holiday week. I hope wherever you are, you were able to get outside. But outside has been a little tricky. Brian, have you noticed the air quality issues we've been experiencing here in northern Kentucky? Yeah, it's ridiculous. And Moving here from Utah about four years ago, we had assumed that we had left all of the West Coast air horrible stuff back there. And now it has found its way out to us. So, yeah, it's I was in Iowa for work last week and noticed the air was bad flying into town. I noticed it was bad sitting outside all week. It was bad. Noticed it with my kids with asthma. It was bad. Just bad. 
How did our bad in Kentucky compare to the bad that you were used to out West? Because I have to tell you, I feel like this opened my eyes. I don't know that I've ever noticed air quality before, and I didn't think about the extreme privilege and benefit that confers on me until here it was, like palpably in our faces. This wasn't as bad as some of the things that we would see. So where we lived in Utah, it was a valley surrounded by mountains on all sides. And so the pollution gets trapped. They call it an inversion. Everything gets stuck in the valley. So the only thing that can get rid of it is major storms. And when you live in a desert, there are very few major storms. So it just socks and socks and socks in. And we've seen it where, uh, you know, here in Kentucky, I'm always amused that our kids can't go outside when it's below 32 to play. Like they don't have coats or gloves, (laughs) you know, whatever. Um, There's privilege in owning coats and gloves. I get that too, but still. (laughs) We're soft here. We're a little spoiled. I think that's what it is. It is. Yeah. (laughs) And so, but our kids in Utah wouldn't go outside to play at resource because of air quality days. So it would be, and there were a number of them where they couldn't even go outside we would go up to the mountains on the weekends to try to get away from it. And you would see it coming down the valley. It just looked like a layer of haze that you would punch through to drive back into the valley. I don't think we're to that level here because this feels very much temporary to me. I think I can I can see the hope in it. Yesterday did not seem nearly as bad. It seemed like it's starting to blow away. But it was, it was, you know, reminders of what it was. We are we have one son who has, for some reason, he has to use an inhaler here and there. And he's definitely been using it more, which was what it was like when we lived in Utah as well. Yeah, I've tried to watch the map since the couple of days where I felt like you just couldn't ignore it here. And it's it's just been an awakening for me to see how many people are experiencing this so frequently to a much more extreme degree than what we get here in Kentucky. I could feel it in my lungs for about two days. One of our neighbors Mm -hmm. who runs was telling me that in the morning his runs have become almost impossible. Mm-hmm. And I am glad that we're getting some relief, but I'm thinking a lot about how can we pay better? How can how can I, how can I, Beth Silvers, pay better attention to this issue across the country? Well, I think, too, like it's getting better for us now, but the way things are going, how long until this is more prevalent? You know, it's we have the bad air quality here very for very specific reasons, and it's because of wildfires up in Canada. So how often is that going to happen again that this is what we see more and more each summer? Absolutely. I was reading this morning about how Monday, July 3rd, is informally being designated the hottest day we've ever had. Now, I guess we're waiting on a a more prominent agency to tell us about their data that goes back to 1880. But preliminarily, it was really hot in the world on Monday, 62.62 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's the average global temperature. So that's like counting Antarctica. It is hot everywhere right now compared to the levels that we're used to and that Earth likes to be. Yeah, it's so hot. And Jen's parent, my wife's family, they live in Arizona. And they always joke, I think I made this joke yesterday, that anything above 110, you don't really notice anymore. But we were looking at their their the often how often their days are above 110. It's ridiculous. We don't visit Arizona in the summer any longer. There's nothing that's going to get me out there. We went once for a wedding. If anyone in our family gets married in the summer again, they're going to miss the hearts of their wedding because it's just too hot. And you can see it feels like where we are, it hasn't been as hot. So I've been kind of numb to it. 
And then when it does get hot, I'm like, oh, that's right. It does get really, really hot sometimes. And we forget that hot doesn't just mean discomfort. I mean, a bunch of cities around the world are hiring chief heat officers because of how devastating it is for a city's infrastructure and unhoused populations. Like heat is really deadly for people across the world. It's deadly for plants and animals, too. We have broken a ton of climate records in 2023, and the oceans especially are hot. And now we have the first El Nino in seven years that is going to make the oceans even hotter. So we could break all kinds of heat records going into 2024. Yeah. And anyone that's had the pleasure of sitting with me long enough knows that I get passionate about a few things and water scarcity is one of them. And the more things are hot, the more it means less water is on the ground because it's going to evaporate off. And it causes so many other issues of oceans warming up, lakes warming up, rivers warming up. I live near a lake in Utah that we used to water ski on and swim in but it got so hot during the summer that the algae just took over. They couldn't manage it, couldn't control it. And they said, look, it's just, this is now an unswimmable lake. You can't bring your dog here. Your kids can't swim here. Don't eat the fish that comes out of this lake. It's pretty, it's big, but don't come near it. I would love for you to talk a little bit, Brian, about the difference between living in Utah and Kentucky because of your focus on water. Like, how do you notice that showing up in just the way you normally live your life? Yeah, so there are a lot of things that, we don't store nearly as much water in Kentucky as we stored in Utah. We used to store a lot of water because we never knew when it was going to go away. We don't have to water our lawn. I did water my grass. I felt very guilty about it, but the grass was like starting to die. It was starting, the ground was getting so broken and, and dead that it needed a little bit of water in a dry spell. But we used to run sprinklers every single day in the neighborhood and it would drive me nuts. So I would stop watering our lawn. I would let it die. We were the brown street on the on the neighborhood. And now that we live here, I think about it less because water is so prevalent. And I'm really grateful for it. The fact that we have lakes and rivers that are so close. But I still think about it's in the back of my mind all the time that we don't have 50 gallon barrels of water in my basement, just in case. <laughs> uh, we, when we moved from one house, three doors down, we did not bring all of our water storage with us. We brought a lot of it, but some of it we got rid of. But I've noticed that when, when I look around, everything's so green. It's, it's different to think of it in an artificial way like it was in Utah where you would pump all this money into keeping it going to here it just happens. And we take it for granted more and more. But I also, even though it's here, we still do things like we don't, you know, water our plants as often. We still water them when they need it. We got to pay attention to when do plants need to be watered and water them then. You don't have to set a schedule for it. We don't have to, you know, set a thing for that. But that's really the big thing is just noticing that we become immune to the idea when we lived out west that you had it's summertime so you have a green lawn and if that means that you destroy all your water sources well now you have a green lawn like every church every school has this beautiful green lawn and there's no water so it would drive me nuts and now i become a little more numb to it now i just focus on how do we ensure that we're not living in places that maybe we're not supposed to live in maybe we're not overpopulating areas part of when we were looking to move out of utah we purposely only look for places that we're not overpopulated and straining resources, which is where Kentucky is. Mm -hmm. We really love where we live. I'm always shocked, though, when I dig a hole to do anything and then water just flows out of the ground or that I have to pump it out of a pump in my basement. I'm not used to that yet, even four years later. Yeah, I think most people don't realize how much water is in Kentucky, how, how many lakes and rivers. They're just everywhere, all over the state. It makes total sense to me if you are a person who's thinking a lot about air quality and water and climate in general to make a move from Utah to Kentucky. I am surprised by how many people are moving to the South and Southwest right now, that with everything we know about climate shifting, 
We are seeing our economy shift in really measurable ways to Texas, Georgia, like everything seems to be coming south and southwest. And I wonder, since you have been in Utah and kind of in the West, where a lot of those folks are coming from, what you think is going on there? And I asked this question when I was in Phoenix over Easter, visiting with my my in-laws. I asked my father-in-law, I said, what do people do here? Why are they building? He had a, They had a piece of land next to their house that was vacant dirt because it's the desert. There's nothing there. We left for a year, came back the next Easter, and there were probably 200 homes. Homes that were so close, if you reached out your window, you would touch the home next to you. And if you had really long arms, you could touch almost both sides. It was really insane. And... I asked, I'm like, how do people afford this? The cost of living is really high now. There's not a, the water. There's nothing to do. And it's this idea that there used to be really low cost of living there. So it was very cheap to have a big family there, to live there. I think culturally, a lot of people out West are have our bigger families. And so it you can have more space, but it's shifted and it's not that way anymore. There are still a lot of businesses that are that are moving there for some reason. I don't understand that either because probably there are population centers. But what we are seeing, too, in those states is people are moving out of areas like California, out of areas like Nevada, to places like Arizona, Utah. Because even though if you were moving there from Kentucky, you would be shocked at how expensive it is. But moving there from California or Washington or Oregon, it's very cheap. So you can move there. You're still kind of close to the coast. You're within 10 hours of the ocean, that kind of stuff. I think that plays a big part in it. But there are still a lot of businesses that went there because it was cheap. The labor force was cheap. You could hire people at minimum wage, $7.25 an hour to do a lot of jobs. So you built your company there and then it just stayed. I did see, and I'll be interested to see how this holds up, that their governor in Arizona did put a moratorium on new builds because of the lack of water shortage. And I thought that is a great headline. And so I have to read more into it. And as you read more into it, I'm not a, I do a little bit of housing development for the nonprofit that I run, but we don't do it to the large scale. And I thought even at my scale, I can get around this very easily. I can make up some 100-year water plan that nobody's going to fact check or check me on and start building houses again. And so I think there's a move in the right direction, but something has to change. It's so tricky because in a lot of those population centers where resources are strained, you also see significant housing shortage. That's why it's so expensive. Mm -hmm. That's why there are these enormous homeless populations. And I don't know how we balance those interests without trying to relocate people and relocating people away from families, businesses, cultures that they've known their entire lives is less simple than it sounds. You know, I think all the time about how we are, on the whole, not a densely populated country, but we have not spread ourselves very efficiently across this land that that we have available to us. So I, I think that the challenges here are just going to continue to compound. And I am really grateful for Kentucky. I've never been as grateful for <laughs> Kentucky as I am today. Oh, my gosh. All the time. I think about it all the time. Never in a million years on a map would have I said, I'm going to move to Kentucky. And I can't imagine living anywhere else. And it was a hard move for us. And we had to purposely decide we're going to move away from everything we know because there are better things out there for us. So well, We're going to talk a lot more about that in just a few minutes. But first, Rob Harvilla is here. And I know you're as excited about this as I am, Brian. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I am very excited. I have two things that I listen to pretty much all the time podcasts and a lot of them and 90s music 90s playlists there's nothing before 1990 and there's almost nothing after 99 and so when i learned that this podcast existed i jumped into it and i told literally everyone i know about it yes one of my favorite things is to process episodes of 60 songs with you and your wife jen and my husband chad so without further ado rob harvella is a senior staff writer at the ringer where he hosts 60 songs that explain the 90s my favorite podcast 
my husband's favorite podcast, besides Fancy Politics, of course. course. With campaign season upon us, I asked Rob to talk with me about music that's been used in presidential campaigns in the recent past. I wanted to have Rob on the show because I know many of you share my love of music because he so beautifully and seamlessly addresses the political dimensions of music in his work and because he's just really good at his job. Rob is funny without being mean. He's fair in his criticism while remembering that people made what he's critiquing and that it brings joy to someone out there. He is nostalgic without holding up the past as something it never was. He's curious and smart and so excellent at podcasting that he makes me want to be better at my job. I am thrilled that he said yes to my random Twitter DM inviting him to be on the show. So here is Rob Harvella. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit.
Rob Harvilla, I'm so excited to talk to you. My husband told me to tell you that as a suburban dad of a certain age, he is mm. your biggest fan. And he really <laughs> wanted to be on this call with us, but felt he wouldn't add a lot. But we are huge fans of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named podcast. <laughs> and I name, have already yeah. pre-ordered your forthcoming book, Songs That Explain the 90s. So, so glad to have you here. That's tremendously kind of you to say. We can hang out with your husband at another time. I'm sure you will have lots to add. Uh, that's very kind of you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm honored. I love what you do on the show. And I especially love when there's a political reference. I laughed until I cried about Tom Steyer. So I would love for you, if you don't mind, to tell a little of that story to our audience if they've not heard it before as an entry point for this conversation. Yes, poor Tom Steyer. I do believe Tom Steyer was not a successful presidential candidate. I'm going to defer to you on this and all other political you know, takes, but that was my sense of things. Yes. He, was <laughs> he was floundering a little bit. He was looking for some juice. And he decided, I believe he was at a historically black college, which is a very unfortunate part of the story, but he gets Juvenile up on stage. Juvenile, the famous rapper from New Orleans, you know, universally beloved. And Juvenile sings Back That Ass Up, you know, Juvenile's, I think, signature song. It's, I guess, technically Back That Thang Up. He played, you know, the, the radio friendly, the political candidate friendly version, sort of. I think there was sort of a mixture of obscenity and not obscenity, but it's just it's just Tom Steyer dancing to back that ass up on stage in I believe South Carolina, and this goes viral, but I like bad viral. I think you would say I don't think this was successful as a stunt as a way of of conferring you know grace onto him. You know I don't know if it quite worked. I myself, I, I just I I can't deal with cringe in very large quantities. And so I watched like ten to fifteen to twenty seconds of it. Like I just I can't I can't it's like looking at like an eclipse, like you're supposed to look through the cardboard box or whatever. I just I cannot directly watch Tom Steyer dance to back that as up. It's just I it's not in my constitution. It was a rough moment for everybody, I think, but I'm I'm guessing juvenile got a paycheck out of it one way or the other. And I, I do support that aspect, if only that aspect. Tremendously difficult for the self-funding candidates to hmm. find music that is the right vibe, I think, for their campaign. <laughs> Just it a is. tough lift. Yes. Yeah. And it's yeah, that was not the move. I can understand, unfortunately, in a very sort of cynical way, why Tom Steyer believed that to be the move. Like I could really picture that meeting, you know, that group meeting is like, who should we get? It's like, oh, I know. We could do. And like, I can I know how that happens. And I can see that being an episode, you know, of Veep or something. Right. Like it's just it's just parody. It's self-parody, you know, in a, in a very unpleasant and cringy and hard for me to deal with way. I think a lot about who wasn't at the meeting when those types of decisions <laughs> were made. Like exactly. when the New York Times recently did this live camera at the border, I thought, who wasn't at that meeting? Mm -hmm. Someone important missed that one who could have yeah. prevented this. I, I think you've got it exactly right. I think that's that's the heart of what's so, so cringy about it. Well, when I heard you talking about Tom and Juvenile, I thought I really would love to talk with Rob about music in presidential campaigns, especially as we're entering what I think is likely to be, unfortunately, a cringy presidential campaign season. 
Yes, absolutely. And so maybe drawing on some history first to go back to, as you put it, the Fleetwood Mac of it all of the 90s. I would love to hear your thoughts about what happened with Bill Clinton and (laughs) Don't Stop. That is, you know, when you I when I think about the 90s and music and politics colliding, I think of two things. And Fleetwood Mac is number one. Right. I think about Bill Clinton using Don't Stop thinking about tomorrow in 1992. And then I think about the Macarena. Right. And I, I, I don't want I don't want it. That that would be another I can watch this for 15 seconds. Cringy moment. That was 96. Right. That's the 96 Democratic National Convention. They're all doing the mock. It's just it's, it's just unpleasant, unpleasant to behold these people doing the Macarena. And of course, in retrospect, it has like a doing the Macarena as Rome burns sort of aspect. <laughs> Don't stop is interesting to me because I when I think about politics and music and politicians seizing upon pop songs, first I go to Born in the USA. Nineteen eighty four. This is a Bruce Springsteen song. This is an anti. I wouldn't. I don't know if it's anti war, but it's a song sung from the perspective of a Vietnam veteran who's been abandoned by his country, you know, and abandoned by the politicians in his country. It's a protest song, and yet it is seized upon almost immediately and almost in perpetuity by politicians to walk on to because you know it's got born in the usa it's got that keyboard riff this is the perfect song and just the total dissonance of that and just bruce springsteen having to say over and over and over again like stop it like don't do that i that's that's where it starts for me and so clinton taking fleetwood mac like i'm i was reading back on it and like I think the people in the room were advising him against that. You know, you think of Clinton, he's playing saxophone on Arsenio Hall. Like he's trying to appeal to the youth and his handlers are telling him that like Fleetwood Mac is not how you appeal to the youth. You know, it's, it's weird to think of it now, but it was not a safe choice, but like he's, he's targeting people of his own generation. You know, I was a teenager at the time and I'm almost embarrassed to say that my entire conception of politics as a teenager was through MTV, right? When I think about it, I think about rock the vote. I think about vote or die. You know, I think about all the MTV news specials. You know, I turned 18 in 96. I got first vote in 96. And I just, I think about the ways Bill Clinton tried explicitly to appeal to me and the ways that he didn't. And Fleetwood Mac, which is like, honestly, got a very effective campaign song, you know, in terms of just the hook, in terms of the message, in terms of the optimism, which I think is a very hard thing to get right. Like the, the, the dissonance, the born in the USA style dissonance is so present in so many pop songs that appear to be upbeat. And obviously Fleetwood Mac's got, you know, you know, billions of, of pounds of cocaine and enmity like backing it. Right. But like you can still here don't stop as this carefree you know uplifting pop song or at least clinton could make it so like it was very effective as a pop song but it wasn't pandering to me you know the way him on arsenio hall was the way him on mtv was you know it's just it's 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 interesting to me trying to chart that on like the cynicism 
index that Tom Steyer is at the far end of. You know what I'm saying? Like it's it was it was it was a good choice. And it was a choice that was true to him and true to his generation. And I'm interested to know, like, if teenagers got it or cared or it influenced them at all. I would definitely trust you over me and being able to assess, like, what it was about that song that makes it so resonant as his campaign song even today. Well, I think that it definitely carried the boomer flag for him. And that Mm -hmm. was maybe the intention more than anything. Maybe he was going to get the teenagers because they weren't going with Bush. That's true. Anyway, so the appeal was supposed (laughs) to be to a different demographic. It was funny. As I was trying to read about this, I had a very classic Clinton kind of experience. I read in one place that he actually wanted to use an Elvis Presley song. And they were giving him a thumbs down to every choice he came up with because they were all so romantic and just the, the lyrics didn't work at all. The mood wasn't right for a campaign event. Then I read elsewhere from Paul Begala, like longtime Democratic strategist, big Clinton Mm. fan, that a volunteer was driving Bill and this song comes on the radio and the volunteer says, boy, that'd be a great campaign song for you. And Bill says, you're right. And I thought, I don't believe that at all. But that sounds like classic Clinton lore to me. I agree. I agree completely with both sides of that. That's now I'm trying to figure out the Elvis song. That doesn't work. I can't come up with like suspicious minds. Like, yeah, no, I don't. I Elvis does not work for him. That's very funny. That's a fun counterfactual. But yeah, I I had read the story. Like somebody suggested it to him, and it was such a good idea. And like, no, I don't believe that either. But like, I believe that he wants me to believe it. You know, that's yes. how politics works from my perspective. That's the perfect Bill Clinton framing for why they use that song. <laughs> it was interesting to me though that this is one of the few times when you see a song used in a presidential campaign where the artist supports it. Mm-hmm. Juvenile mm-hmm. aside, with Tom there. <laughs> I wonder what you think about what it meant for Fleetwood Mac for Clinton to kind of resurrect this song. That's what I was trying to figure out. I was trying to work myself back into my teenage brain. And like, did I think, what did I think of Fleetwood Mac to the extent I thought of them at all? Like from a critical perspective, I think it's, I don't know if you're a fan, like it's the dance. It's the live album in 1997 where they do Silver Spring and it's incredible. Like I, from a critical perspective, I feel like that's where Fleetwood Mac, I think we're always respected, but that's the point where a lot of people are like, these guys are actually cool. And like, these songs are actually great. And like, to the extent you can say they had like a renaissance, you know, or they were reassessed for a new generation. That's when that happened is that live album. I don't know that, you know, it's, it's 1992. I am 14 years old. I don't think I think about Fleetwood Mac enough to think that they're cool or they're uncool, you know, just subconsciously, thanks to the radio or whatever. I know 15 to 20 songs. I know all of rumors, whether I want to or not. Like it's I think it just works. It's enough that it's like a song I recognize. And again, a song that has like both a superficial and like an actual uplift to it. Where I'm like, fine, that makes sense, you know, as as a song to associate with him. Like, I, I'm trying to think of what it would have looked like if he had tried to pander to teenagers. Like, what's the 1992 like alternative rock song that Bill Clinton like would try, like, like Pearl Jam's Alive or something? Like, none of none of the things that I'm thinking are very appealing to me. I think you're absolutely right that what he needed was the boomer you know, vote support and like, there's nobody 
you're going to get that from better than you're going to get it from Fleetwood Mac. First time since 1982, Lindsey Buckingham, Mick Fleetwood, Christine McVie, John McVie, and Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac. Are the 90s more than other decades? Like, maybe not. But I was just thinking if he got the teenagers in the 90s, he would have lost the parents. It seems mm-hmm. like most of the music of the 90s was really about that divide. Right? <laughs> you were you yeah. were like going, you're not going to go Celine Dion. Right. Yeah. Or Metallica. No. So what do you do? Oh, my God. Metallica would be fun. Nothing else matters as a campaign. <laughs> there we go. There we go. I like Yeah. That. Yeah. It's, I, I don't recall as a teenager, like, thinking maybe it's just my humble you know catholic midwestern upbringing but i didn't i didn't feel like my generation was at odds with my parents generation or like things that they liked i had to hate and vice versa but i that's an interesting idea and i i suppose it is true broadly that you have to pick one or the other you know and maybe one of the appeals of don't stop is like it's appealing directly to the adults in the room but it's inoffensive to the teenagers versus, you know, like, like Elvis, for example, I think anything older than Fleetwood Mac would have been like, Oh, he's old, but like it's 1977, right? Like it's Fleetwood Mac is classic rock already at that point in the mid nineties, but it's not ancient, you know, it doesn't feel like ancient history, like Frank Sinatra or something like it's present tense enough that he doesn't seem old fashioned. You know what I mean? Yes. And that's why I think what Bob Dole did in the 90s was really interesting, because the trend for presidential campaigns going back into the 1800s was to have a song actually written for the campaign. Mm -hmm. And so Dole wanted to both do that and seem a little younger and hipper (laughs) than he he begins his journey. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on I'm a Dole man. I had totally forgotten about this until until you guys pointed it out to me. And that's that's the funniest thing in the world to me. I had blocked this out entirely and I go to look it up. And the first thing I find, as you say, is like the, the publishers of soul man being like, stop it, mm-hmm. pay us for everything you've done so far and don't do this anymore. Like I just, it's, it's so funny to me and I don't want to overgeneralize, but it does seem to be overwhelmingly on the Republican side. Like so often the song they pick, the artist immediately is like, stop it. Like, this has happened to Tom Petty repeatedly. I believe it happened to Hart. Like, Sarah Palin did Barracuda, right? And mm-hmm. Hart were like, no. And again, born in the USA and perpetuity is always being seized like this. I just, I, the other thing that made Fleetwood Mac so great is they were into it. They would appear on stage with Clinton. Like that's even harder, even harder than finding a pop song of any age that appeals to the voters is finding a pop song where the artists are going to deal with you at all. And that's probably, you're probably better off being a Democrat in that position, just based on, you know, the politics usually of 60s, 70s rockers. But I, it's so hard 
to find a song where the artist will be willing to go on stage with you without, you know, again, in Juvenile's case, like presumably quite a big check. I it's that it was just the perfect storm and it never really, to my mind has happened again in my lifetime where there's been like a, a campaign song that everyone could agree on, that everyone was cool with, that the artist was cool with, that has sort of it stood the test of time, you know, far beyond whatever extent you think Bill Clinton has stood the test of time. It's unreal to me that he got them to play together after they mm -hmm. had stopped playing together at his inauguration. And then I found, as I was researching this, two letters that he sent them, one to thank them for playing the inauguration, and the mm -hmm. other to thank them for, like, five gold record copies and both of those letters were so depressingly generic to me. Like, <laughs> ChatGPT could have written them, yeah, just yeah, really yeah. meant a lot to me, you know? And I just, mm -hmm. I felt really sad about that because this was, with the notable exception of Lee Greenwood, this is mm. a very big deal. It was. Absolutely, it was. It's funny that you could, if, I don't know if he actually did this, but it's, I got Fleetwood Mac back together. Like, that is a very strong political like, send me to the Middle East. If I can That's solve right. Fleetwood Mac, I can solve anything. That's a strong message. That's legit. Also, what else do you people want? That, that's a successful first <laughs> term, maybe. Maybe I'm we're saying, done here. The first 100 days, get Fleetwood Mac together. That's it. That's all I'm doing. That's all I'm concentrating on. And I did it. Promises made, promises kept. Absolutely. That's right. Well, if you're willing to roll forward from the 90s just a little bit, I mm. have to know your thoughts on you can't always get what you want. And Donald Trump's insistence on using it. Trump, unlike most of the Republican politicians who have folded when artists have pressed them on their use right. of the songs, just keeps using everybody's music exactly the way he wants to. But I think that song is the funniest and most interesting choice. It is fascinating, right? Because it's it's the antithesis of what a politician is supposed to say. The whole point of being a politician is to say, I can get you what you want always. And so the, the dissonance, the purposeful dissonance of that, first of all, is very fascinating to me. But you're absolutely right. I, this has been happening my entire lifetime for decades. Republican politicians use a song. The artist gets mad. That makes headlines. And I have to conclude that it's worth it, that like it's, it's beneficial to the politician to piss off Tom Petty, right? To piss off Bruce Springsteen for the 50,000th time. Like you're sticking it to them. You're using their song for however long you get away with it. And you're broadcasting that message, you know, that like I, I embody this song's values, but I reject this artist's values, you know? And it, it that must be the calculus. Like this keeps happening. And I don't want to be cynical, but like it has to keep happening because it works, Right. And especially in the case of Trump, if Trump's entire, you know, value proposition is like defiance and just like, fuck you to everybody, then this is part of it, too. You know, this is part the, the other norms he's going to break is he's not going to bow down to the Rolling Stones when the Rolling Stones try and get him to stop. This is this is part of what makes him such an effective candidate is, you know, he's going to he's not going to deal with this shit anymore either. I just think the song's use is fascinating, too, because it's so, like, menacing in a vague way. It's, it's just like from the beginning, he's telling yeah. us how this is going to go. Right. And the children's choir. Like, yeah, it's, 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 it's a fascinating cultural moment to think about. It's, it's, it's pretty upsetting. I, I think about Paul Ryan and Rage Against the Machine. 
right? You know, and and when everyone finds out that Paul Ryan's favorite band is Rage Against the Machine or whatever he says, like your impulse is to be like, how could you? How could that be? Like, don't don't you listen to this? Don't you get the message? Like, how can you be so stupid as to listen to this band and think that they're you know endorsing any of your political values? But like, whatever you think about Paul Ryan, like Paul Ryan's not stupid. Rage Against the Machine isn't going over his head. He just has the ability or the will or whatever to extract what he needs from Rage Against the Machine. He hears what he wants to hear. He filters out the rest. He can take fuck you, I won't do what you tell me and sort of apply it to whatever he wants to apply it to and just discard, you know, 95% of everything Rage Against the Machine ever said or stood for. And it's, you know, the Rolling Stones are not political generally, artistically in any way, but that same sort of calculus applies that applies to bruce springsteen you know bruce springsteen is a fascinating figure to me in that like he's i think left-leaning but like he tries very hard not to lean too far into that right like i think about bruce springsteen after 9-11 you know he puts out he puts out the rising i think in 2002 and i think legitimately that record is one of the most effective like post 9-11 like let's all do this let's all rebuild together we're going to come together as a country, like an actual legitimate stirring appeal to, you know, a, a, a fundamental and universal American values. Right. Like, and that's, I think that record is really effective in that way. And I don't know if it's the next one, but he puts out a record called magic, which is not all about this, but it's, it's as ants, it's as political as to my mind he's ever gotten. Like it's, it's, there are songs on it about, that are anti-war, anti-Iraq war, like against George W. Bush, against Dick Cheney, you know, and, it, and it's not super explicit to the point where it's alienating a lot of people. But I just think about the line that Bruce Springsteen always tried to walk where you know what he stood for, but he was trying so hard not to alienate everybody. And obviously he's one of the biggest rock stars ever. So he's been successful about that. But just the line you have to walk where no one is mad at you ever. You know, and Rage Against the Machine is a band that was so explicit, so hilariously explicit from the beginning about what they believed and who they were appealing to and who the enemy was. And it's just wild to me that, you know, a politician that I think they would consider the enemy can still take their music and praise their music and associate himself with their music while discarding so much of the message of their music. Yeah, it almost feels like a relic that Paul Ryan could praise Rage Against the Machine and that Bill Clinton could be collaborating with an artist who generally tried to not have everyone be angry at them. Like, I don't know if that can happen mm-hmm. again. I hope it no. could someday, but not not here in the 2024 cycle. I don't think so. You know, I fight song in Hillary Clinton, you know, is is more the way this happens now. Right. It's 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 unfortunate that I sort of wince to even think about that or say that out loud, but it's, yeah, it's, you can't always get what you want. You're absolutely right. Is the most striking, you know, candidate and campaign theme song combination, you know, in the last five, 10, 15, 20 years. But I, it's just the rest of them all for one reason or another are just super cringy. I was trying to think about whether this matters 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> just to, to, to people who aren't sure. big nerds like I am, does this matter to anyone? Does this matter to a campaign? I think it has to in the sense of generating headlines like you talked about. I do think that Republicans gain something mm -hmm. by continually pissing off the elite artists or whatever. Yeah. See, they don't even want us to like their music kind of stuff. Right, right. The best analogy I could come up with is like walk up music at a baseball game that it maybe it doesn't really affect the game. But psychologically, it does do something to all of us in terms of like, how do we connect with this player? Do we do we like this person? How hard are we cheering for them? No, I think you're right that it's subconscious the vast majority of the time. And the only time that it tips over into something we're all talking about is if the artist rejects it, you know, and you get that cycle or you know, it's, again, something successful like Clinton and Fleetwood Mac or something hilariously unsuccessful like Tom Steyer and Juvenile. I think the vast majority of the time, like it is, it's subconscious and it does matter. Of course it matters. Like I just, my entire career, my entire life is predicated on the idea that like music affects you, whether you're thinking about it directly or not. And so these, these choices matter, but it's not very often that you look right at them and really examine what's happening. I was thinking about Biden's virtual inauguration mm -hmm. and how his big thing, and it came up suddenly, like 24 hours, it was like, Joe Biden, the new radicals are getting back together for the first time in 25 years or whatever it was to play. You get what you give. And everyone was like, what? Like, are you, <laughs> are you serious? And we all get our jokes off. Right. And like, I'm early, I'm in early days of my podcast and I do an emergency you know, episode of the podcast. And we all have a lot of fun with that. And then somewhere in there, I read that the reason for that is Bo Biden, because, you know, Bo Biden is, is, is struggling with cancer. And that song meant a lot to him and meant a lot to Joe. You know, this, this whole damn world will break your heart. Don't be afraid. Follow your heart. And just like all this cynicism and stupid jokes just drain out of you in a moment. And it was such a stark, it, it almost never happens in politics, but like it just, everything else falls away and it's just a person listening to a song and a, and a song mattering so much to a person. And it just, it was so striking to me the way that to say, and also like the virtual inauguration, you know, and just the insane environment that we were in at that precise moment, you know, contributes to this surreal reaction to like Joe Biden got the new radicals back together, you know, but, but suddenly it's just a father and his son listening to a song as the son is dying. And you're just like, Oh my God, like it's, it's such a striking moment of realizing that all these people are human and like, like any humans, like they have these incredibly intense emotional and sincere emotional connections to a song, you know, and the entire point of politics is like the cynicism of it, the calculation of it, and just using the song or using the artist for what you can get out of it. But like, it was so wild to me to have like such a jokey viral moment sort of just explode and all that's left is this sort of very stark and striking human moment. Yeah, that is the good kind of press that can mm -hmm. come from yeah. from a choice like this, for sure. And that really leads me to my last question for you. You've covered a lot of songs from the 90s now, far more than 60. Thrilled with that. <laughs> you can keep going for as long as you'd like to, as far as I'm concerned, as a dedicated listener. But All right. I wonder what the most political song you think that you've covered is, defined broadly, not attached to a candidate or a party, but the song that really the artist intended to say something political with it. Ooh. 
I've been thinking a lot about Let's Talk About Sex by, by Salt and Pepper, which was from 1990. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, pop music's response or non-response in the late 80s and early 90s to the AIDS crisis, to HIV. And I, I know there are other examples, but I couldn't think and I can't think of another example of just such a direct statement as salt and pepper made with let's talk about sex. But then I think it was at Peter Jennings's request. He's doing like an ABC news special on, on HIV and he asked them and they do, they rewrite it as let's talk about AIDS and it's salt and pepper rapping about how you get AIDS and how you don't get AIDS, you know, and it's a, you don't get it from kissing or hugging or whatever, you know, you get it from this, 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 but like delivered as like a buoyant, catchy pop song salt and pepper rap right and it's 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 just it's such a deliriously surreal moment but it's stirring in its way too like i, I that's that's the first thing that i think of all right then come on spin let's talk about sex let's talk about sex let's talk about sex when thinking about Rage Against the Machine at the other end, I mean, this is a very harsh example, but like Cop Killer by Body Count, by Ice-T's group Body Count. And it's it was so striking. Like, it's just his side projects, you know, that no one's paying a ton of attention to. And that record comes out and that song is out in the world, but no one cares really at first. And then I think it's like a, a Texas cop's daughter, like tells her dad about the song. And within like, what is it? Weeks, months, the song is wiped almost off the planet. You know, the backlash is so severe. Like Dan Quayle's involved, George Bush senior is involved. And that song is taken off the record, you know, and I see said at the time, it's like I, people, people in the record company are getting death threats. This isn't about me. This is about like the people around me, but he, he capitulates he takes the song off the record. It's still not on the record. If you buy it, it's still not streaming. Like it's as close as I can think of to a song, like being wiped from existence. Like it's on YouTube or whatever. And what's so striking about that is like the song cop killer is totally unspinnable. You know, you think that rage against the machine are unspinnable and they mostly are, but you can still extract you know, a defiance, you know, you can, you can just take again, fuck you. I won't do what you tell me, leave the rest and like convince yourself that, that raging as the machine are speaking to and for you. Ice T song cop killer, you know, which he was at pains to explain was like a fantasy, which was, was, was fictional, but you cannot spin that. You, you cannot mm -hmm. make that say something other than what it's saying and what it's saying is like a, extremely harsh and confrontational. And that's why the song had to be destroyed basically. And that's, that's political in its way, whether he meant it that way or not, you know, whether when he wrote the song, performed the song, he, whether he ever envisioned what would happen to it or not. And he, like, he's on the cover of Rolling Stone in a, in a police uniform you know, off that, like it, you, cynically, you would say like, he got a lot of press for it. He got a lot of attention. You know, a lot of people talked about that record and heard that record or parts of it more than they would have, if none of this would have happened, but like whether he meant it to or not, that song became extremely political 
as well in the sense that it became totally untenable to, you know, whatever, 50 percent of America. Yeah, this is the hard thing about creating anything. You don't get to decide what conversation it starts. Maybe you Mm -hmm. know it'll start a conversation, but is it the one you intended? Exactly. Who knows? This has been a delight and such a treat for me. Thank you so much for spending time here. No, I'm honored. Thank you so much for having me. So the podcast is 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. Out now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The book Mm -hmm. is Songs That Explain the 90s out in November. November, yeah. November 7th, I think. Yeah, we got a while. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code 
Podcast 15. Brian, you moved, as we talked about, from Utah to Kentucky, and you knew absolutely no one here. (laughs) I want to talk about that experience for you all, because Sarah and I talk a lot about how hard it is to make friends as adults on the show. And I feel like you and Jen must be experts at this and have lots of practical wisdom to share with people because you integrated so fast into the community here. When you said that you want to talk about this and that it's hard, I think I responded, yeah, it is so expletive hard. I won't mm-hmm. use the expletive. I use it's, it's pretty harsh, but it is one of the like. Like I said earlier, we we had an opportunity to leave everything we knew and move, and it was not to a lot of people's surprise. Not our first time when we were early newlyweds. We had an opportunity to move to Alaska and live in a very small town where we knew very few people. We knew a handful, but we didn't know that many, and so we had to learn how do you decide who you're going to be friends with? How do you build that community? And then we moved back to Utah and forgot everything we knew. And so when we decided to move across the country to Kentucky, we knew zero people. I knew the CEO of the agency I was going to come work for after two meetings. And my brother-in-law's parents, who I barely knew him, lived north of Cincinnati, and that's it. And so we were really nervous about it for us, for our kids, because when we lived in Utah, I've had the same three friends since the sixth grade that we would see each other every week. We still talk to each other almost every day. My wife's, Jen's friends, they go back to way before then. They would see each other, not weekly, more often. And we lived near them. We would walk to each other's houses. We had a very, very tight-knit friend community that had its positives, also had its negatives. When you are that close to people, you don't get to ever hide anything. You also never really have any space. It is what it is. So when we moved, we talked about how are we going to, what do we want? What do we want to have in our friends? And what, how do we want to make this work? And we decided that we were going to be very intentional in how we find new friends. You know, at 37, that's when we moved. I was 37 years old. How do we do this? And we decided that in the beginning, we would start with just surface level friends. We would share very, very little about ourselves. We would learn about other people and we would try to figure out where we fit in. We tried attending a local church that we had attended back in Utah and we found that there really there were a lot of really nice people who would probably even today drop everything and help me out. But there were no there were really no friends there. Another thing we did is when we moved in, uh, my son who's nine, Jack, he had his birthday a couple weeks after, and we decided we would have a birthday party for him. We didn't know anyone. We didn't know anyone in the neighborhood, but we knew there were a lot of kids because there were bikes everywhere. So we went around. We made an invitation that basically said, "You're invited to Jack's birthday party if there are any children that live in this house." And we put it in every single mailbox in our neighborhood. And we planned a party, hired the world's worst magician, bought a ton of pizza, and hoped people would show up. And they did. There were 60 or so people that showed up. And it gave us an opportunity to immerse ourselves in. Again, we could have celebrated his birthday very quietly, done what he wanted to do, but we decided to make it a way to find people. And people showed up, and we were able to figure out. It was an icebreaker for us to figure out what people wanted. We also decided that we were going to learn about what interests do we want to have with people? How do we want to build a relationship? What was important to us? You know, for us, we have three kids. We like the outdoors. We do like to travel. We are very, we're not rowdy people. We're very kind of chill people. So we wanted to find people like that. And so we were going through people trying to see what's going on. And again, 
we would talk about it. So me and Jen would talk about it all the time. She was, you know, we, have you met anyone? Okay. What were they like? How far did you talk to them? How do you, did you want to go? And we would say, remember, stay surface level. We don't want to share too much. We want to make sure we're meeting people at the right space. And then COVID hit. And then we, you know, we decided, okay, we, we have nobody. We had no family. We had, you know, some surface level friends and it gave us a chance to say, okay, who should we, I don't know, glob onto for lack of a better word. How do we pod together with people? And that's where our friendship with you and Chad and your girls, I think is where it became really strong for us. And we decided, okay, we're done dipping our toe in the water. We figured out who we like. We figured out who we want to be a part of in our community and we're going to go all in. And so we're going to become friends with people. We're going to figure it out a way. And we had to be open to kind of where everyone else was at, but we had to be a little pushy, bit pushy about it. I remember the first time we came home from hanging out with you guys when it was just the four of us one-on-one with each other. It was like our first date with just you guys. <laughs> and we came home and I was like, okay, I'm a little intimidated by these guys. Like they've got their act together. <laughs> they're super smart. They're all these things. And I was like, that's cool. I'm really excited for what they're going to bring to the table. And hopefully we can bring something to their table as well. And we decided also that everyone doesn't have to be the same level of friend. When we had our friends back in Utah, everyone was our best friend because we've known them our whole lives. And so everything had to be the same level of intensity. And we said, okay, we can have different layers of friends. You know, I have my work colleagues. I'm very specific. I don't bring my work into my personal life as often as I possibly can. I keep it out. And so that's not where we're going to find friends. We also found that for like the church we were attending, we wanted to keep that kind of separate and have that kind of community. And then in our neighborhood, we have some people who, like Beth described, emergency contact. I think that's not a great way to describe it. There are family. We have holidays together. And there's other people in the neighborhood who do the similar things. And that for us was what it was. It was very intentional. And it was hard. It was very hard. And there were a lot of times where I know for me and for Jen, we would be at night. We're like, is this, do we really need friends? I mean, we're almost 40. We really like each other. Let's just get through the next 12 years, get our kids out of school, and then we'll go retire somewhere together. We got married very young, too young. We lived together. It was just us for a very long time. So we are solid. And we thought maybe we don't need friends. But we did. We definitely did. And we've gotten so much out of those friendships. And they continue to evolve. And we've even gotten to the point where we're not afraid now to say, okay, some of these surface level friendships we made, they're going to stay at that surface level. We know them. They know us. I will bring in your mail. I will take out your dog, all those great things. Mm -hmm. And then there's other people who it's like, if something happens to you or to me, I need you to take my kids or I need to take your kids. Like that's, there's different levels that you can Mm -hmm. get at. And it's choosing where you want each person to be and not being afraid to say, everyone doesn't have to be your best friend. Other people can just be good neighbors or good friends who can help you out or come to a party, come to a barbecue. I love that you guys thought so much about this, talked about it, processed it, gave it such a long period of time. I do think COVID probably accelerated all of my relationships in one way or another, right? Mm -hmm. There were people I realized like, oh, I didn't, I didn't reach out to you. Like I didn't miss you or not that I didn't miss you, but just we've drifted in different directions and that's, that's okay. No hard feelings. It's just, that's just the way life goes. And then the people that I want to spend time with that became super intense during COVID. I want to know, since you guys have have spent so much time processing this, how much proximity matters. I think that proximity has allowed our families to just log the hours that you need to log with people to become really close. I do feel like y'all are family now after a really short period of time because we've just got, we've put the hours in. And that's because it's easy to walk to your house or for you to walk to our house. 
I wonder how you see that in other relationships. It's true. And it is, I mean, I think we're the epitome of once we find our crew and our people, we will do everything we can to protect that relationship Mm -hmm. to the point where a year ago, when we had to move out of our house, well, we needed to move our house. It wasn't fitting us any longer. We moved three doors down and we waited a year to find the right house to literally stay in our neighborhood because we had built these friendships. And our fear was, if we move two blocks away, could we have this same very tight core relationship with all the people that we were we had? We also have found that there are some people where having a few miles away is really nice. We have some friends who are living in Utah and who knows their situation. It's looking like they may move somewhere. And we keep saying, you know, you guys should... Kentucky is amazing. Mm-hmm. And you guys would do really well in Lexington or Louisville, which is about an hour away from us. Because we feel like that would be a good place to be. We've also, in finding new relationships, how to maintain old relationships has been equally as hard. And so we've been very focused on making sure that we visit with friends. We, Jen and her friends will go every few months and they'll find the cheapest place all of them can fly to. And sometimes, it's ex- and oftentimes for some reason, it's as exciting as Denver, Colorado, in you know when there's nothing to do and they they go and they meet up and then they break up and leave to go to their own places but having the people close by has made it that more strong for us because mm-hmm. i know if i need something my friend is right there like i'm not worried about it i can walk up there you may be surprised at how often sometimes we drive up there you know it's it's a whole thing but we <laughs> but i think that makes a difference and for us our kids it makes a difference for them too as they're building their friendships that I hope they'll go back and look at and say, oh, I've been friends with these guys since we moved to Kentucky and I was in the first grade. I've been friends my whole life and they'll go on and have their own life experiences and hopefully we'll find bigger, different friendships as well, but they'll still have the ones they made here. So I want to help people who are in that initial phase of like they found some surface level people, but they want it to go, they want to find like their best friend family. I think something that our families have done that's been so helpful is just like creating the ritual of Sunday dinner. We talked mm-hmm. about it for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think you were the one who was finally like, it's time to do this, guys. We're just gonna, mm-hmm. we need to do it. And so tell people about Sunday dinner and what you all like about it. Yeah. So I am a person who loves ritual, who loves things that go together. I am, if you've got a good cult out there, like I will be bought into it pretty quick. I just like ritual. <laughs> I like when everyone's doing the same thing. I like when tour groups are matching clothes. It's so weird, but I love it. And the fact that we do something together each week. So every Sunday night, we do dinner and we trade off between houses and some weeks it doesn't work. And we just say, Hey, it's not working this week and it's fine. And we don't stress about it. We're not mm-hmm. sad about it. We're sad about it, but it doesn't kill our, the relationship. Right. It's not like no, well, one, Beth, no one ever gets mad. Beth or... canceled. So now we're not friends anymore. Right. No, <laughs> um, but we just get together. We eat a meal. We, our kids are there. Typically the kids eat their meal. We eat our meal as adults. Give us that time. We play cards every mm-hmm. time. It is important to me that we play nerds every time so that we can <laughs> continue to, to play cards with each other. But what it's done is it gives you a point in time where you're focused on what's happening, not with work, not with the rest of your family stress, not anything else, but just with your friends. It's we're just there. We're having dinner. It's not like a big to do where you have to clean the whole house and you have to make a fancy dinner. It's like, hey, this week we ordered pizza and this week we're trying a new recipe. And yeah, we're going to eat in here because that room is a disaster today. Mm-hmm. So we're all going to kind of eat in shifts or in chair, you know, on folding chairs. But the idea that we have something that always happens. And I know for my work, I travel a lot. So I'm not here for all of them. But to know they're still happening, I'm not is really important for me. Because you 
it creates an opportunity where you're not forced to be together, but you can plan to be together. And so there's not this stress of, well, I haven't seen them in a while. How do I make that call? It's like, no, this is happening every week. And it's helped take that friendship, I think, a little, it makes it a little stronger. But it also, for our, our kids, they're used to it now too, and they really enjoy it. And they, even as our oldest children are becoming to the point where they don't want to go to their parents' friend's house for dinner. Like, they're like, do I have to stay for dinner? My other friends are going fishing. I'd rather go fishing. And we say, no, we do this as a family. It's our family dinner. And they don't fight us. They just go. Sometimes they leave early. But it builds for, I think it shows them how to keep things important. Mm-hmm. I think also for us, what we did to go from surface level to another level is eventually we did plan to go away together. I mean, I feel like these discussions are very similar to when you're going to date someone very long term, but we're like, let's, let's go on a trip together. Let's a very, you know, we'll go on a small trip. Let's see how that goes. And it went great. Like, okay, we could do this again. We could go on a longer (laughs) trip. And now there's other people like we've done that before. And we say like, never again, like they're going back to surface level friends because we can't handle two days alone in a cabin with them. Yeah, I do feel like the first time I think I invited Joel over to dinner, I had that like I'm asking someone to prom feeling, you know, it, it it just takes a lot of vulnerability and risk. And there is a chemistry that's either there or it's not with people. And I think the hardest part about making, you know, friends with another family is that you really need everybody to be able to match up. To me, knowing that Chad and Jen could hang out. Like we can we can hang out in any combination. Our mm-hmm. kids I could put in any combination and trust them to stay home alone together. Like mm-hmm. any grouping of our children, I feel really good about. That's hard to find and I do think once you find it it takes a lot of cultivation, but then it's just it's the best. I'm just so glad y'all are here. Yeah. It's the best. And now it's easy. I wouldn't we wouldn't yeah. get, I mean we we move to stay, stay down and then the next phase will convince you to come wherever we go next. So it'd be perfect. I think that's right. I don't intend for y'all to go to the ocean by yourselves. And I am worried about the climate, as we talked about in the first step. So we're going to have to discuss which body of water. <laughs> right. Because my long-term plan is to finish work and then retire to a beach and rent snorkel gear to tourists. I'm very vocal about it. So. <laughs> I know. I just think that, you know, a river or a lake with that kind of prospect they might think. be viable. <laughs> It might be more reasonable at that point. <laughs> there may be no beaches. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for talking to me today, uh, Brian. Of course. And for sharing all this with our listeners. Thank you all for listening. I'll be back with you on Tuesday to talk Supreme Court decisions. And until then, have the best weekend available. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Pettins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Danny Osmond, Jen Ross, Sabrina Drago. Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, 
Joshua Allen, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.